chapter five part one of women of the french revolution by winifred stevens this librivox recording is in the public domain five part one the story of the revolution told by its women writers Quote, la revolution de france est une des grandes époques de l'ordre social ceux qui la considèrent comme un événement accidentel n'ont porté leur regard ni dans le passé ni dans l'avenir madame de stahl one of the many services women writers rendered to the revolution was the record they kept and the account they have given of its history in this respect as we have seen madame de stahl and madame roland stand first after them we must place madame de genlis and madame julien then come louise fusil and charlotte robespierre madame de stahl's story of the revolution is remarkable for its critical talent and intellectual breadth it shows says professor Burry, a more dispassionate appreciation of the movement than any of her contemporaries were capable of forming madame roland's story written in prison with the guillotine suspended over her head and all her political hopes disappointed is inevitably partial and frequently acrimonious she wrote with a twofold object one literary to follow the example of her master jean-jacques rousseau and to present a sincere and intimate picture of her own mind and heart from her earliest years the other political to give such a description of the girondist party which she had founded and inspired as should justify that party's policy madame de genlis was the most prolific woman writer of the revolution on n'a jamais été plus décidément écriveuse que madame de genlis wrote saint beuve had the inkstand not already been invented she would have invented it she was indeed the author of at least one hundred and thirty published works her object in telling the story of the revolution was to justify her own conduct and to clear herself from the charge of having been involved in an orleanist plot to overthrow the monarchy and place her friend and employer the duc d'orleans on the throne madame julien's diary and letters are some of the most reliable of revolution documents for they were written without any idea of publication louise fusil was a gay little butterfly of an actress who with the novelist's charm wrote what she remembered about the strange sights and scenes of the stormy days through which she had lived charlotte robespierre who was without any literary gift wrote at the request of an admirer of her brother's la Ponoreille, who was editing his works it will be seen that the reliance we place on the judgments and historical accuracy of these writers must be qualified by a consideration of the strong political bias under which all of them except perhaps louise fusil wrote indeed as we try to piece together a more or less chronological outline of the main events of the revolution from the various stories told by these women writers we shall find that none of them not even madame de stahl can be trusted to give a completely accurate account who can however by comparing one record with another and by allowing for the temperament the point of view and the political bias of each author by taking into consideration the object of the work and the period when it was composed we may derive from these feminine pages some knowledge of the main currents of the revolution and of its principal actors though all of them were more or less on the side of the revolution they belonged to various sections of the revolutionary party and some of them changed their opinions as the revolution went on this was not the case with madame de stahl and madame roland their opinions never wavered the former remained always a constitutional monarchist the latter always a republican though perhaps somewhat of an opportunist the first of the revolution parliaments the constituent assembly came nearest to realizing madame de stahl's political ideal 
the second the legislative assembly the ideal of madame roland with the policy of the convention they were alike in disagreement as to madame de genlis she was above all things genlisarde and it is doubtful whether she had any well-grounded political principles but she professed to love the revolution with sincerity especially during its first eighteen months she thought so she says that the new constitution however imperfect could not fail to be an inestimable benefit seeing that it destroyed despotism and other horrible abuses madame julien embracing the revolution with all her mind and heart evolved with it from constitutional monarchism to moderate republicanism and then to extreme jacobinism but she remained throughout a recording spectator and one whose critical sense never entirely deserted her louise fusil while moving in revolution circles frankly avowed that she had no political principles he who said that women always adopt the opinions of the men they love made a curious mistake she wrote for her own part she took care not to espouse the opinions either of her royalist father or of her republican husband both of whom found themselves on the steps of the guillotine from which they were delivered by robespierre's death charlotte de robespierre though less frank than louise fusil was not less devoid of political principles it was merely the force of circumstances that drew her into the revolution whirlpool these six women wrote at different periods of their own lives only two of them madame julien and madame roland wrote during the revolution charlotte de robespierre louise fusil and madame de genlis all wrote in old age and long after the events they recorded madame de stal did not live to be old but she too wrote her most important work on the revolution considération sur les principaux événements de la revolution française years after the revolution frenzy had spent itself this book is her last work left incomplete and published in eighteen eighteen the year after her death widely different were the objects with which these women wrote louise fusil took up her pen merely to amuse herself and her friends and to make money charlotte robespierre for the same reason probably and also to glorify her brother maximilien and to clear herself from the charge of having betrayed him madame de genlis to give herself the beau role and to refute accusations made against her notably those of being involved in an orleanist conspiracy against the crown and of having plotted with dumouriez to overthrow the government of the revolution madame julien to keep her husband informed of what was happening and to build up her son in the doctrine and principles of the revolution madame de stal to vindicate the memory of her father necker and to demonstrate that a constitutional monarchy is the form of government best suited to the french nation madame roland to justify the political conduct of herself her husband and of the girondist party to which they belonged neither of these eye-witnesses was in paris throughout the whole of the revolution charlotte robespierre only arrived in paris from arras in the autumn of seventeen ninety two louise fusil frequently went on tour in the provinces and towards the end emigrated to england madame de genlis went to england in seventeen ninety one returned to paris for two days in november seventeen ninety two then hovered for weeks on the frontier before starting on migrations through germany switzerland and denmark from which she did not return until eighteen hundred madame julien's first letter from paris during the revolution period is dated the sixth of september seventeen eighty nine her last may seventeen ninety three madame roland was in paris from february till september in seventeen ninety one she returned in the december of that year to stay until her death on the eighth of november seventeen ninety three 
except for short intervals madame de stal was in paris from the beginning of seventeen eighty nine until her escape during the prison massacres in september seventeen ninety two charlotte robespierre as long as she lived with her brothers watched the revolution from the innermost keep of the jacobin fortress louise fusil from the green room of the comedie francaise madame de genlis from the palais royal madame julien from the galleries of the assembly and the jacobin club madame roland from the heart of girondisme from the ministry of the interior and finally from the prisons of the abbaye st pelagie and the conciergerie madame de stal from the study of her father the controller-general of finance and from her salon which she is said to have converted into an antechamber of the constituent assembly it is to madame de stal that we go for the best account of the opening months of the revolution no one has described more vividly the meeting of the states-general on may fifth seventeen eighty nine the first meeting after an interval of one hundred and seventy-five years the day before from a window at versailles she watched the twelve hundred deputies of france going in procession to church to hear mass it was an impossible spectacle she writes and a novel one for french people all the inhabitants of versailles and many from paris had assembled to see it this new element in the state the nature and power of which was as yet unknown filled with wonder those who had not previously reflected on the rights of nations when the black-coated black-cloaked deputies the lawyers merchants and men of letters of the third estate came by the democratic heart of necker's daughter thrilled to see their confident glances their imposing numbers and to notice among them nobles who inspired with eighteenth-century doctrines of equality had forsaken their own class to mingle with the people one of these revolutionary aristocrats stood out from all the rest it was impossible to help looking at him at his immense head of hair like samson his strength seemed to depend on it at his countenance which its very ugliness rendered expressive while his entire personality suggested power ill-regulated but such as might be wielded by a tribune of the people this striking figure was none other than the comte de mirabeau the dominant figure of the first mild phase of the revolution on the following day even greater things were to happen the states-general assembled in a building hastily constructed in the avenue de versailles madame de stal was one of the many spectators admitted to the opening ceremony on a raised platform had been placed the throne the queen's chair and seats for the royal family in front of this kind of stage sat the chancellor barentin the three orders were so to speak in the pit the clergy and nobility on the right and left the deputies of the third estate in the centre they had declared beforehand that they would not follow the ancient custom observed at the last meeting of the estates one hundred and seventy-five years before of kneeling when the king arrived if the deputies of the third estate observed madame de stal had knelt in seventeen eighty nine every one including the purest aristocrats would have considered the action ridiculous that is to say contrary to the ideas of the time when mirabeau appeared a murmur was heard throughout the assembly m necker as soon as he entered was overwhelmed with applause his popularity was then at its height and the king might have made good use of him while continuing faithful to the system the main basis of which he had adopted when the king took his seat on the throne for the first time i began to be afraid writes necker's daughter for i noticed that the queen was greatly moved she arrived late and her complexion showed signs of emotion the king delivered his speech with his usual simplicity 
but the countenances of the deputies expressed more energy than the monarchs and such a contrast was disquieting at a time when nothing being as yet established strength was necessary on both sides the three speeches of that day the kings the chancellors and Necker's, all dealt with the financial crisis which alone had driven the government to summon the states-general for the first time after so long a period Necker's speech writes his daughter pleased no one neither the conservative nor the progressive party the former considered necker to have proved that the summoning of the states-general was unnecessary by showing that owing to his wise administration the financial crisis was past the progressives on the other hand having resolved to reform the constitution were alarmed to find necker ignoring this part of their task and confining himself to finance they accused him of treating this great national parliament as if it had been a mere provincial assembly necker was indeed one of those moderate men who are doomed to failure in times of revolution whilst for most people the revolution would seem to have broken out on may the fifth the day of the assembling of the states-general or on july the fourteenth the day of the bastille's fall for that egotistical governess madame de genlis july the ninth seems the all-important historical day because it happened to be the eve of her own birthday the festival was being celebrated by a pantomime in the very midst of which the news of risings in paris was announced the orleans governess and her pupils were then at st leu some miles out of the capital one of the actors in the pantomime giroux a painter was playing the part of polyphemus eager to see what was happening in the capital no sooner had he finished his part than he rushed into a cabriolet and drove in full haste to paris without even staying to change his clothes his costume and his eye painted in the middle of his forehead caused so much amazement that he was arrested at the city gate and taken to the guard-house where he was detained for over two hours being minutely interrogated as to the reasons for such an astounding disguise he was only allowed to go free by invoking the then popular name of his patron the duke of orleans for madame de stal and for many others all the events leading up to the storming and destruction of the bastille centred round her father having failed to persuade the king to renounce his project of concentrating great masses of troops round paris necker resigned on june the twenty-third so great was his popularity writes his daughter that the news of his resignation brought all paris out into the streets and it was doubtless this public manifestation that caused both the king and queen personally to implore necker to save the state by withdrawing his resignation this necker did but as the king persisted in his design and as necker also persisted in his opposition the minister found that his advice was being ignored though he continued to wait on the king daily louis was now entirely in the hands of his reactionary councillors for necker the whig of the french revolution the position was impossible he told his daughter that every day he expected to be arrested on the morrow the blow fell on the eleventh of july when the comptroller-general received a letter from the king commanding him to leave france immediately he showed the king's letter to no one but his wife it arrived at three o'clock in the afternoon when madame necker was holding her salon immediately after her guests had departed without staying to make any preparation for the journey she set out for the frontier with her husband the king had wanted to get necker away before the people who adored him knew of his disgrace and had time to make a demonstration on his behalf the precaution was useless for the news of necker's dismissal and banishment when it was bruited abroad produced the first great manifestation of the revolution 
on july the fourteenth one hundred thousand citizens as a protest against this treatment of their favourite minister captured and destroyed the royal fortress of the bastille meanwhile madame de genlis at st leu was in close touch with paris every day a courier brought out news from the capital on the fourteenth the tidings were such that madame de genlis felt she could no longer remain in the country she and the duke's children came into paris where they found the attack on the bastille well on the way from the garden terrace of her friend beaumarchais madame de genlis surrounded by her pupils watched men women and children working with unprecedented ardour at the demolition of the fortress those avenging hands annihilating so swiftly the work of many centuries seemed to her to be the hands of providence and she shared the joy of the destroyers at the fall of a fortress on which so she said she had never been able to look without a shudder remembering the arbitrary imprisonments within its walls to celebrate this memorable occasion madame de genlis had an elaborate ornament made which she used to wear at her breast it consisted of a polished stone from the bastille set in a branch of laurel composed of emeralds and inscribed in the middle with the word liberté outlined in diamonds above also in diamonds was the planet that shone most brightly on the famous day and beneath in the same precious stone the moon as she appeared on that night surmounting the whole was a tricolour cockade in jewels the first result of the destruction of the bastille was necker's recall he was on his way from brussels to coppet his country seat in switzerland when at bale on july the twentieth he received a command from the king and an invitation from the national assembly to return to france and to resume his office once again he obeyed his return journey was a triumphal progress wrote madame de stal who by this time had joined her parents and was accompanying them back to france the transports of a whole nation welcomed him country women fell on their knees as he passed townsmen unharnessed his horses and dragged his carriage themselves when he reached the capital all paris was in the streets at the windows or on the roofs crying vive monsieur necker the next day the hero for whom the bastille had fallen went down to the hotel de ville as amidst thunders of applause he addressed the assembled multitude his daughter so she tells us lost consciousness in the ecstasy of her joy in no period of french history have there been so many public festivals and processions as during the revolution one of the earliest was the first festival of the federation as it was called held on the champ de mars on the fourteenth of july seventeen ninety to celebrate the anniversary of the fall of the bastille many prints of the time portray the picturesque preparations for the fete and in a manner no less picturesque the graphic louise fusy describes them in her recollections the help of all parisians men women and children were requisitioned to construct the huge mounds of earth which were to enclose as in an emerald setting the vast field of mars every one went to work bands of volunteers were organized the theatres were to the fore every cavalier chose his lady to whom he presented a light spade adorned with ribbons and bunches of flowers then with the band leading us says louise we set out joyously the costume was designed which would not show the dust an overall of grey muslin with dainty slippers and stockings of the same colour a tricolour scarf and a big straw hat cousin jacques was my cavalier he even composed a poem to celebrate the occasion we dug we wheeled the earth about we ourselves were wheeled and we had such fun that we hindered the work instead of helping it soon our assistance was dispensed with 
and we were very sorry for it had been very amusing madame de stal regarded the same festival from a much more serious point of view looking back on it after the lapse of more than twenty years it appeared to her as the last expression of a truly national enthusiasm when royalty and liberty were united when france was about to possess the constitution most fitted for her a limited monarchy like that of england during the preparations madame de stal rejoiced to see women of the highest rank mingling with the crowd of voluntary workers and the eighty-three newly constituted departments sending their delegates and national guards to swear to the new constitution true it was not yet complete but its principles were universally approved of the constitution and its principles do not concern louise fusil she as an actress is interested in the way in which these provincial delegates amuse themselves she tells how mirabeau took the delegates from marseilles to the palais royal theatre there a play called bayard was being acted and acted too realistically for these fiery southerners for when a band of assassins set upon the knight without reproach who was being carried on his litter the marseillais horrified to see the incapacitated hero so completely outnumbered rushed upon the stage and were about to make short work with the assassins when bayard assured them that he ran no real danger by the appointed day july the fourteenth though the help of louise fusil and her colleagues had been dispensed with the preparations for the festival were complete in front of the military school wrote madame de stal were steps leading to a tent for the king the queen and the whole court they occupied the amphitheatre opposite them was an altar on which talleyrand bishop of autun was to celebrate mass while all around from eighty-three lances planted in the earth waved the banners of the eighty-three newly constituted departments when m de lafayette approached the altar and swore allegiance to the nation the law and the king the oath and the man who swore it filled the people with confidence but there was another in whom the people at that time were beginning to place even greater confidence than in lafayette that other was mirabeau although madame de stal regards him as her father's rival and the leader of the opposition which had led to necker's final resignation even she is compelled to admit that had he been more conscientious and less self-seeking he might have created a strong party independent of the court on the one hand and the mob on the other there were indeed many who in those early days looked to mirabeau to save the state his death after a few days illness on april the second seventeen ninety one inflicted a heavy blow on the cause of the revolution and was mourned throughout the whole kingdom louise fusil travelling to lille was continually stopped on the road and asked whether it was true that mirabeau was dead no sooner was his illness known than the street in which he lived was full of an anxious crowd waiting for the bulletins the news was passed eagerly from one to another and finally on the announcement of his death a long cry was heard accompanied with sobs and groans the day of his funeral was one of universal mourning all shops were closed and any one who appeared without some sign of grief was howled at by the crowd in those days of suspicion and excitement the suddenness of his malady inevitably gave rise to a rumour never substantiated that he had been poisoned by some actresses with whom he was supping when he was taken ill with mirabeau died the last hope of french monarchy to the king and the nobles it seemed that nothing remained but flight in june louis and his family got away as far as varennes where they were overtaken and brought back to paris meanwhile there was an exodus of aristocrats and an army of these emigres under the king's brother le comte d'artois 
was assembling at coblans and soliciting the support of european sovereigns to keep louis on his throne by foreign bayonets ever since the first meeting of the states-general madame de genlis so she says had been wishing to leave paris she dreaded the disorders which she felt sure would break out in the previous year she had had an adventure which made her more anxious than ever to quit her native land she has described it in detail in her memoirs and we may be sure it loses nothing in her telling one day about four o'clock she writes mademoiselle monsieur le comte de beaujolais my niece henriette de Cercy, pamela and i drove out in a calèche to see a country house some four leagues out of paris we passed by the village of colombe unhappily it was a fair day crowds of people from the neighbourhood had gathered in the village as we drove through they thronged round our carriage and took it into their heads that i was the queen with madame and monsieur le dauphin who were fleeing from paris they made us get out of the carriage of which they took possession as well as of the coachman and our servants in this confusion the commander of the national guard a young man of good family named baudry came to our assistance and harangued the people but he could not pacify them he succeeded however in persuading them to allow him to take us to his house which was close at hand by giving them his word of honour that he would keep us there as prisoners until the matter was completely cleared up he led us through an immense crowd and as we passed on this short journey we heard many voices crying a la lanterne finally we entered his dwelling but a quarter of an hour afterwards four thousand people besieged the doors forced them open and rushed into the house in a terrible tumult m baudry courageously and kindly made every possible effort to calm them we were in the garden and as i heard that they were about to arrive i told my pupils to play at rounders with me then sure enough a terrifying crowd of men and women rushed into the garden they were surprised to see us at play we stopped our game at once and i advanced to meet them with the most perfect calm i said i was the wife of one of their deputies that i was going to write a note to paris and i asked them to send a messenger with it in order that the matter might be cleared up they listened but without being convinced for they cried that it was all lies and that i was writing to ask for reinforcements and they concluded by saying that if any one were so foolhardy as to go to paris they would hang him from the lamp-post when he returned m baudry then spoke to them and extremely well but in vain during the dispute i was taking snuff and i had my snuff-box open just as i was proposing that we should be given a guard of ten or twelve men and left in peace until the morning a wretched peasant dead drunk filthy and disgusting came and took a pinch of snuff out of my box i threw the rest of the snuff away and went on with my speech this action astonished them and had a good effect many said that i should not be so calm if i were really the queen at this point a man from the crowd seizing an opportunity when every one was talking at once came to me and whispered in my ear i was once Sillery's gamekeeper don't be anxious i am going to paris these words were as balm in gilead to me finally all the peasants consented to go away but they left us a guard of a dozen men armed with bayonets at the end of their guns who followed us everywhere most of the people were drunk they stayed in the streets near the house where we were so that it was impossible for us to escape at eight in the evening the mayor of the village arrived to cross-examine us in order to make himself as imposing as possible he had put on his tricolour scarf he asked me gravely to deliver up to him all the papers in my pockets i gave him four or five letters 
while he was carefully examining the seals i urged him to open them he replied brusquely that he could not read but he refused to give them back to me under these conditions we passed the whole night our peasant besiegers in the streets were sleeping themselves into sobriety when they awoke they were more reasonable at five in the morning Sylvie's ex-gamekeeper returned from paris he had been to the town hall and brought back an order for our release this good gamekeeper had been quite sure that the people when sober would forget that they had ever refused to let us return to paris he was right no one remembered they were unanimous in recognizing that i was not the queen and their wrath gave place to repentance they clamoured to escort us back to paris in triumph what a story that would have made for the newspapers End of chapter five part one